podcast listeners usually find out about a new podcast in one of two ways. Either a friend recommends that podcast to them, or the Apple podcast charts rank that new podcast highly. The Apple podcast charts are created using an algorithm that is not known to the public. Many people believe that the chart ranking of a podcast is based on the number of podcast subscribers, or the number of podcast downloads, or the reviews that are written about the podcast on iTunes. Jack Resider is the host of Darknet Diaries, a podcast about the dark and strange elements of the internet. Darknet Diaries is told in high-quality, narrative audio format. Jack is a security engineer with a deep understanding of technology, and he's been blogging for a long time. So he's the perfect person to put together a podcast like the Darknet Diaries, which is phenomenal, and I cannot encourage enough for listeners of this show to check it out. As Jack has built a following with his podcast, he has spent more time looking at the iTunes podcast charts. He has seen the rank of Darknet Diaries increase, but he has seen the rank of other podcasts increase much faster. Some of these podcasts have low-quality content. The audio quality is poor. The host is unprepared. These are the kinds of podcasts that you would listen to once, but you would never subscribe to. And yet, numerous podcasts with low quality were somehow able to game the rankings and make it to the top of the charts. In episode 27 of Darknet Diaries, Jack investigated the phenomenon of fraudulent podcast chart manipulation. This was one of my favorite podcast episodes ever, and this is coming from someone who has listened to a lot of podcasts. The investigation went to several unexpected places, but Jack did eventually solve the riddle of how low-quality podcasts climb the iTunes charts. Jack joins Software Engineering Daily to talk about the fraudulent world of podcast ratings and the broader implications of the fake internet. Today's episode is a simple example of how easily internet platforms can be gamed. For a deeper, wider dive into the fake internet, listen to our past episodes on advertising fraud, or tomorrow's episode with ad fraud investigative journalist Craig Silverman, an episode that I am very excited about. Jack Resider, you're the host of Darknet Diaries. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be here. You did an episode about the iTunes podcast charts, and we'll talk more generally about your podcast and the other things that you cover, but I want to focus at first on the content that you covered in episode 27 of Darknet Diaries, which is your fantastic podcast. I really just can't compliment you enough on this, oh, thank you. this this product that you've built. But let's get into podcast charts. Explain what podcast charts are. So the big player in podcasting space is iTunes or otherwise known as Apple Podcasts. They were the first big like distributor, publish uh, host, not so much host, but like place to get your podcast. So when you're, you know, one of the first to the market, you're going to get a big profit share of that. So something like 60% of all podcasts are downloading, downloaded off of Apple Podcasts. So this is where people go. And when they go, they uh, Apple tries to give them something to, to check out. So they give them the top charts. This is the top 200 most downloaded podcasts in the last day, two days, week. 
And a lot of people discover new shows from here. So they go there to see what's new, what's hot, and they, they find new shows here. So being on this chart not only means that you've made it as like a podcaster, but also means you're going to get a lot of organic discoverability. Just to assume the least amount of knowledge about the iTunes podcast charts, I'd like to, to present some contrasting charts. So how would you contrast podcast charts, at least the iTunes podcast charts, with something like the New York Times bestseller list? Well, so the New York Times bestseller list is going to be what a lot of bookstores will stock for their books because books bookstores want to sell books. And so the books that are selling the best are going to be the ones that are going to move the most. That's the ones bookstores want to stock. So sometimes you see uh, bookstores actually have like a whole bestseller rack because these are the ones that are on the bestseller list. And of course, when you get on the bestseller list, now all of a sudden there's a lot of bookstores buying those books to sell them. So you're just going to get a lot more people buying the book. I mean, it just, it has this natural explosion of growth once you get there and a lot more people discover your book as well. So there is some similarities and, and some other similarities might be like when you go onto Yelp and you see like a highly rated restaurant and you say, okay, you know, let's look at all the restaurants with five stars. Or when you're shopping for a hotel and you look for all the hotels that have five stars. Uh, These are all similar lists. Maybe Amazon, when you're buying something from there, there's a whole bunch of top charts on Amazon, you know, top rated in the cooking section or in the book section or in the electronics or video game section. There's always that. And and then also in software, you know, you've got top charts on Steam, the video game platform, and you've got top charts in like the Android store and the iTunes store for, for apps. So, you know, everywhere you look, we're, we're influenced by some of these top charts. And I think what we're getting at here is that some of these just aren't, uh, they're, they aren't what they're cracked up to be. There are these versions of charts that are unified for all users. New York Times bestseller list is going to be the same whether I'm looking at it or you're looking at it. The podcast charts are the same. Hacker News is the same. Everybody sees the same results for Hacker News or the New York Times bestseller list or podcast charts. This is in contrast to your Facebook news feed or your Twitter news feed or your Netflix recommendation. How would you contrast the news feed recommendation-like system with a chart-based system? Um, You know, I haven't really got into that too much. You know, as far as algorithms go within social media, it, you know, it changes by the day. So, but you, but it, it's often by the people you follow and try, you know, you kind of, you kind of pick and choose the stuff that you want to see in, in some of these feeds. As far as news stories go, I don't want to get, you know, too far into some conspiracy rabbit holes, but, you know, some news is manipulated to let you see things in more positive light for this particular campaign or something or or more negative for, for whatever they're trying to push here. So, you know, it's hard to get a fair and balanced pipeline of information into our world to begin with. And I think there isn't kind of an underlying problem there. And that's a little bit bigger than what I try to tackle in this episode, though. All right. Well, we'll get down the conspiracy rabbit holes later on in the show, if time permits. Let's talk just about podcasts. What role do podcast charts play in the podcasting ecosystem? You have a podcast business. I have a podcast business. How do these charts actually affect you and I? Yeah, so being on trending charts or top charts is really what a lot of podcasters hope to get on because as you get there, you're going to have a lot more people finding your show and downloading your show. And 
anyone who makes anything, you know, as an independent creator or anywhere, you're going to want to get that to spread. So if you write a blog post, you want that to spread. If you make a podcast, you want that to spread. If you make videos, you want that to spread. Probably, you know, not everyone wants to be popular, but a lot of podcasters do. So marketing is a whole new skill. It's a whole new challenge. It's a whole new game. And a lot of people haven't put like, you know, lots of time into figure out how to market whatever it is they, they made. And that is a struggle for a lot of people. So I think some people try to find shortcuts and some of those shortcuts start getting a little dangerous. What data does Apple take into account when they're calculating their podcast chart rankings? So Apple's pretty very much a, like a black box company. We don't know. No, they've never shared that with us because if they if they tell us what the algorithm is, and it's the same thing with you know the New York Times bestseller list. If we know exactly what the algorithm is to to get onto those charts, then we're going to have people manipulating that algorithm to get on the charts in kind of a shortcut way. Uh, you know, they're going to cheat their way past the 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 way you're supposed to do it and just do it the I'll call it the black hat way, you know, and and just cheat your way onto the charts. So we've seen what, there's people who have seen what's been going on in the Apple charts for years. They've been watching how shows get on there and such. So the going theory from a lot of the top minds that I've talked to have been the number of new subscribers per day, and it may be weighted per week. That is probably the best way that the the charts are, are shown to the users. Now, a lot of people have this misconception that ratings and reviews are what gets you on the charts, but there's been a lot of a lot of research that's come out from from various people that have showed that this doesn't matter. Like for instance, there's some podcasts that are out there on the top charts that have absolutely zero ratings and reviews. None. And they're still on the top two hundred. So you don't necessarily need to have that at all to get up there. And then there's some that have a lot of ratings and reviews and aren't even on the top four hundred or eight hundred. You know, it's they're nowhere to be found. So the ratings and reviews doesn't seem to have any effect at all. Downloads, I don't think have any effect. I think it simply comes down to subscribers. I think we'll we'll get into some of the reasons why that is in a minute here. Yes. Now the notion of a subscription, this is getting into some podcast subtlety, but depending on what podcast player you are using, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or you know, the multitude of other clients you can use to consume podcasts, which are essentially RSS feeds. It's just this primitive internet format. You can think of it as primitive as HTML. It's one of these very old school protocols for consuming content. Basically, each of these podcast players is an RSS reader together with a MP3 player. And Apple's is, in most ways, no different than that. So are we talking about subscribers from the Apple Podcasts scope, or are we also talking about subscriptions from other podcast players? Yeah, good question. The The RSS is a feed, so it's a basic XML file, is how podcasts get distributed. It's, it's basically just a map of where the MP3 files are, and then that is... Um, that that tells the podcast player, you know, where to where to listen, where to download this the music file from and or the sound file from and then you can play it. But 
These are specific per podcast app. So some of the big apps are, are Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox, Overcast, Pocket, uh, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict. Each one of these has the ability to count the subscribers independently and differently. From a podcaster perspective, like you or I, we really have no clue how many uh, subscribers we have because there's there's no way for us to actually count that. And each one of the different podcast players don't share that information with us. So all we're left with is looking at number of downloads per episode and such like that to kind of get a guess as to how many subscribers we have. Technology just isn't there to know when someone has subscribed to an RSS feed or not. We just There's just no indicator when that happens. But the players themselves do know that because they actually click that button that says subscribe on the player itself. So when I am talking about subscribers, I'm specifically talking about it in that podcast app. And, and in this case, it's the Apple Apple Podcast player. Now, for people who are uh, having their hands hover over their podcast player right now because they're ready to press stop because they're like, I don't care about this. This is not meaningful. These podcast charts, like, why are they talking about this? I believe that what you investigated is representative of a broader trend on the internet. And I want to discuss that eventually. And I hope the people who are listening who are less interested in podcast charts will see this as our microcosmic piece of work to get through to understand some some broader facets of our internet. But when did you start to feel like something was wrong with the iTunes podcast charts? Yeah, there were shows coming up. As a podcaster, I was like a fiend of, of watching the charts to see what what's coming up, what's going down, how do I get on it, you know, all these things that, because that was kind of the, the golden ring I was reaching for, the brass ring, whatever. So I was seeing shows get up on there that I, in my opinion, didn't deserve it. They were terrible shows, poor, you know, poorly made, had very little, you know, there wasn't a celebrity host. It was very obvious that this isn't a top player, right? There, there, there just, there just wasn't anything about it that made me say, oh yeah, this is a top 200 podcast. It was just absolutely rubbish. And that's when I started thinking like, somebody might be gaming these charts. Somebody might be figuring, they, they might be hacking it or something to get their show onto these charts in a way that is cheating. And, you know, like, like you said, for some of these other listeners who don't really care about podcasts or not, this is kind of like a black hat marketing story where some of the other lists and charts that, you, that, we, that we use to buy things from or consume stuff from or, or putting our own content on, I think most of them at this point are being gamed or cheated at somehow. And I think it does kind of affect us all in the way we consume things or, or try to market our own software. Yes, and there was a certain point you reached in your investigation of the podcast charts where you start to see the world in a different light because you realize, wow, if something as inconsequential as podcast charts are being sophisticatedly gamed, what does that say about things that drive much more financial spend throughout the world? So so we'll we'll get there, but let's first talk about your strategy. What was your strategy for investigating this opaque world of podcast charts? Yeah. So I started getting some messages on LinkedIn from podcast promoters, quote unquote, right? And they're like, oh, I can get you uh, I can get you on the the top 200 list. I was like, well, how? Because I, I do know a lot about marketing. So how are you doing this? What is it that you... And they were specific. They were like, oh, I'll get you on the, on the specific 
category and on this specific country. And I'm like, what? So, you know, all the, all the signs pointed to me that they were doing something to, to hack, it, hack their way on there. And so once I started getting these promoters messaging me and telling me that they can sell me their services, that's when I thought that I might be able to go down this rabbit hole and figure out who are these people, what are their tactics, what are their, you know, maybe I'll learn something about the iTunes charts on the way and, you know, how much is it and all this kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's what led me down this entire investigation, which took about three months of just talking to, to a dozen podcast promoters and a dozen podcasters that I thought were also gaming the system and doing as much research as I could on the whole matter. What does a podcast promoter actually do? So this was not an easy question to answer. I had to call a bunch on the phone and get them to tell me, you know, I asked over and over and over and nobody really wanted to tell me. But I eventually got to the bottom of it that what they were doing is they would have like a list of a thousand Apple IDs, which are the usernames and passwords for users for Apple uh, iTunes, you know. And so they'd log into Apple Podcasts with this username and subscribe to your show possibly, you know, optionally download all the episodes they could, wait a few minutes, log out, and then log in with the new Apple ID and do it all again. And so they were doing this 50, 70 times a day with each podcast that they were quote unquote promoting. Now, specifically in Apple Podcasts, there are charts for different countries. So whatever they were doing in the country that they had selected, that's the country that it would rank up in. And so you start seeing this anomaly on certain on certain podcasts that they were ranked really high in one country and completely non-existent in pretty much all other countries on on Apple Podcasts, which kind of is a clue again as to somebody might be doing something suspicious here. How do these podcast promoters, these these people who are goosing the podcast charts, how are they finding customers? So there's a few different methods. Number one, they're looking on LinkedIn for anyone who calls themselves a podcaster or on Facebook who calls themselves a podcaster or even Twitter, you know, podcasters. They'll be instant messaging everyone they can. And they also make accounts on things like uh, Fiverr, where this is a, a place that you can you know, buy outsourced people to help you with things. So they'll make an account on Fiverr that says, I'll help you promote your podcast. And this is where it starts getting, I don't know, tricky or something, because you assume that when you buy a service on Fiverr, it's going to be a legit service. It's above board. It's, it's legal. And basically, when they had their accounts on Fiverr, this was a black hat marketing strategy. This is something that goes against the Apple terms of, in terms of use. You know, if you're caught with doing this, you may have your show kicked out of Apple podcasts. And, you know, this is there available for anyone to just go look at in Fiverr. So Fiverr started noticing some of this stuff and has been trying to crack down and, and get it out of there. You know, these podcast promoters should not be advertising Black Hat services right there in Fiverr. You you, you know, we, we would expect Fiverr to be above board on, on this kind of stuff. So that's how they're getting clients. So who is manipulating the charts? And and in during the show, you, you reach out to some of these podcasts some of them are smaller unknown podcasts. Some of them are actually major podcasts that you and I would have heard of. I know you you didn't talk about the specific ones that you identified, the the major ones who have sort of made it. I guess they faked it till they made it. Who is doing this? So, I mean, there's a lot of people who have never marketed anything in their life, right? So they're like, what do I do? Do I put Facebook ads out? Do I do Twitter ads? What do I do? And then they come upon this person that says, and this is so here's here's what they say. They say for five bucks, 
I can get your show to the top of the iTunes charts. Give me a try. And you're like, well, for five bucks, I'll surely give that a try. I mean, that's a lot cheaper than all the other options I was looking at for, for advertising here. So they throw in five bucks and they see their show shoot up to the top. And so now you've got somebody who, who's just getting into podcasting. And when you when you make a podcast or, or pretty much make anything and you're, you look back and you're, you're like, okay, I'm excited that I've made this. I'm proud of it. I want, I want it to get out there now. Go, go make it, go find some audience or something right and and you really want it to spread so so you, people have this excitement to to make it happen like let's let's put the fire on now and let's have this burn and that's you know they they kind of capture that feeling within you like oh yeah we can make it exciting together i'll help you make it exciting you know get popularity for five bucks is what what it starts at but then it ends up being like more like five dollars a day so after one day for five dollars that was great you want to keep it going let's go on a monthly plan uh, you know give me five bucks a day which you know starts adding up so you got these podcasters who really want to do it but like you said there are a couple big shows and the ones that are you know nobodies it's real easy to spot them because they just stand out because they don't have any reviews they don't have any ratings they only uh, rank up in one country in the world and all these things but some of those bigger ones that just want kind of a slight boost, like maybe they're, you know, ranked 250 in Apple Podcasts, but they want to get in that top 200. So they only need like an extra 30 more subscribers a day to get them there or 20 more subscribers a day. And those ones are really hard to spot because they're just barely tweaking this, you know, tweaking the system to get up in there. And I think um, I did. So I, t- I found three bigger podcasters that I thought were tweaking the system like this. And I called up two of them and I spoke to two and they both agreed to me. Yes, uh, they did that. One of them publicly uh, admitted to it. The other one only admitted to me privately, said, do not tell anyone, but this is the story. And I said, okay, I just wanted to confirm that I, I was on the right hunch. Uh, the third one didn't get back to me. They're really hard to contact. I just didn't have a good contact method for them. And I think I think they did this fake it till you make it. They 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 get it. They got it going, got it going. They stayed on the chart so long that they got enough new people to, to find them and discover them. And now they probably don't need to do that. So they can pull back on this uh, promotion strategy that they were doing and in fact i even wrote a book recently and i don't even know maybe they're maybe they're gaming the book list as well because their book did really well it is remarkable and if you think about it it is it's hard to make it on the internet as a media person you think about like what does it require for somebody to check out your thing i mean you make the thing you make the podcast you make your first three episodes you make your first five episodes you release them and if you don't know anybody, if you don't have too many friends, if you don't have a massive social network, you can't get your content out there. Nobody wants to pay attention to it. You know, you, you tweet about it, you post it on LinkedIn, post it on Facebook, maybe you make an Instagram account and you get nowhere. And and you just say to yourself, this is frustrating. Like, I've got something to say. I want people to hear it. And so you pay money and you, you know, you're just like, well, I don't know what this promoter is going to do. Maybe they'll do something magical. And then they do something magical and you don't think about it beneath the surface. Like what could they actually be doing to get, like, if I can't, if I, like I made this thing, I can't get people to listen to it. You know, you don't dig deeper, but you have to, you have to imagine like some of these people who, who, who do use the podcast promoter, they have to know that there is something malfeasant going on you didn't really go into this on the show but is, is there some like cognitive dissonance that allows people to to do this or uh, do they just have like a 
some sense of morality that lets them justify it? What's the psychology for somebody that buys quote-unquote podcast promotion? Yeah, I, I bet there's a bunch of different things that go on in their head. Number one, if you see it on Fiverr, it's probably legit. So let's give it a shot. Um, even though it probably doesn't sound right in your head, like, I don't know how this person is doing this. But it's like, like I said, it's, you know, you would you'd buy above board services on Fiverr. So if it got there, it's probably, you know, people are doing it. So that's one thing is just like, it just seems normal. The other thing is it's curiosity. Could this possibly be true? Like I'll throw in five bucks and see if this actually works. And then when it does, you're like, okay, keep this between us. Let's keep this going. Okay. I won't ask questions. You won't ask questions. Let's just, let's just keep this going. Right. So, uh, you know, there's some of that, which, you know, it's, it's one of those slippery slopes that once you, try a little and it's like really nice you're like okay that wasn't so bad i'll try a little more and a little bit more another person told me that they hired someone to help them promote and they were doing a good job they were running the twitter and they were doing all these ads on facebook and all this above board stuff and they also got into this and so this was something that you know the podcast host didn't know that the person they hired to promote them actually was doing this and they were completely oblivious to this tactic so, you know, that was another thing. And then, yeah, maybe there are some people just with, with poor morals altogether that know that this is, you know, possibly get you banned from Apple Podcasts, but still go for it anyways. And that's that's the tricky part about black hat marketing is that the kind of by, by definition, it's against the terms of service of whatever you're trying to get popular in. So you risk the chance of completely getting banned in that very same place you're trying to be popular in. And that's, that's I think that's the biggest risk right there is possibly losing everything. There you alluded to something that makes this really hard to... If I'm running a company and I'm trying to be the next, like at the, the, the uh, some huge podcast production company, like let's just pick on Gimlet since they got acquired today. Let's say I, I run Gimlet and my organization has 100 people or 200 people. And one of them is responsible for growth. And you and I have both worked in technology. You get assigned a KPI, your key performance indicator. You know, what's your key performance indicator? Well, it, you know, how do we measure growth? It's you know, the increase in number of subscribers or the number of weeks where we are near the top of the podcast charts. And that's your KPI. And let's say you're having trouble meeting that KPI. Well, you might be tempted to go after a disreputable or unpredictable mechanism for boosting your status on the podcast charts. And so we, the bigger an organization gets, the bigger a podcast's footprint gets, it's almost like the more likely it is to be biased towards doing this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's possible, but... I only found one network that was actually doing that. I, that was on my radar that to actually doing that. Yeah, I suppose you know some of the bigger players could do that. This was a smaller network, and it just felt like they were doing it to all their shows as like, come join our network, and we'll get you on the top charts because we can. I don't know. Lie, they'll, they'll lie and say you know we'll cross promote against our other podcasts or something. But really, none of them are are, are popular. They're just all being game to be on the top charts. I think it's a lot of the smaller shows that are doing this. The you know you've got six hundred thousand podcasts out there now, and everyone is trying to figure out how to get a bigger audience. And it's, and there's you know something like one hundred fifty thousand just started last year. So all these new shows are like, how do I? get an audience here and i think i think this is where the majority of the people are are at is uh, the ones that are just really frustrated with not getting a, a more people listening 
Do the advertising agencies that are buying podcast ads have an awareness of this ability to game the podcast charts? Yeah, that that's something I didn't go into on my episode, but that's something that you can really foul up, right? Is you can you can pay someone. All of the podcast manipulators that I found were all in Bangladesh. And this is just a place that is exploding in freelance workers. So you got a lot of Bangladeshian you know, people working at uh, Fiverr and Upwork and this kind of thing. It's just like the third most popular country now. So it just seems to be an explosion there. And for some reason, they're all there. But what I found was they were all giving me an option as I was talking to them to download the episodes as well. Now, if you have, you know, an extra... But you have an extra group of people downloading, you know, a thousand or, or more episodes a day or a thousand times a day. You know, now now that's worth, you know, more to the, the sponsors because what the sponsors in podcast world will pay is number of downloads. So now, you know, you're falsely inflating that sponsors are going to you're going to get more money from sponsors. But, you know, it's, it doesn't work out that way because you're cheating it. Um, so sponsors, I don't think are aware of it as much as they, they should be. I, I mean, you, it's possible to be lying to them. The, most sponsors are just taking your word for it that, oh, I have this many downloads. OK, well, this is how much I charge for that. In your experience, is that actually what the podcast market, the podcast advertisers care about? Because in my experience, it's like they want to see conversions. They don't care about impressions. So I've talked to a bunch of other podcasters, and we've been selling ads based on number of downloads, and it's it's cost per thousand. So something around twenty dollars per one thousand downloads is what we're doing. And in in podcasting world, it's a little different for for sponsoring because you don't get that conversion. It's not easy because people are driving or people are, are doing something and then they, they get home or three days later, they hear about it again from a friend and now they're like, oh yeah, I should check out that product because now that I've got two people telling me it, there it is. So you don't get that conversion right away. You kind of get that influence, if you will. This is somebody, a podcaster that I really like. Now they're telling me about this product. I'm not interested, but you know that's, that's, that B stays in the back of your head. And so now when that you know topic comes around again, or when you're in the market of shopping for that thing, you're going to think, oh yeah, there is this option too. And it's probably going to be first in your head of like, oh, we, we can you know buy this mattress or, or buy this security system or something. So I think it's more of a return of influence than, than less of a turn on, on value. Right, right, right. So you're saying this is more of like, like the way that this is going in reality is more like an influencer marketing channel rather than a cost per conversion marketing channel. That's what I've seen, yeah. I would agree with you. And, you know, what makes me, I mean, I get a little, I don't get frustrated about this, but just like, I guess, perplexed, you know, you'll sometimes be talking to, I'm sure you, you know, I don't, I don't know how much, you know, sales, you, podcast ad sales you do, but you, you know, your podcast is monetized. I'm sure you've had conversations with, with companies and you talk to them and you're like, here's my audience. And, and they're like, well, that's too small for us. And we're only, you know, we, we're not interested or we're not going to pay that much. And, and then, you know, a month later you see them going with some other podcast and you look at that other podcast and you're like, this podcast is garbage. Like nobody listens to this and you know that there was some deceit there does that happen to you at all has that happened to you or is there maybe you're, you're not as deep in the sales world as i am i've been monetizing for the last two months and i've talked to a bunch of advertisers and i haven't had that happen to me yet it's kind of like a marketplace right now where you you as an advertiser you get like to look at a bunch of shows and see which ones are you know monetizing and which ones you want to put your ads in and you can kind of pick and say hey you know would you be interested in having us as a sponsor and you can start dealing with that and so they kind of come to me already interested and 
and that's what I've experienced. It's like, okay, well, this are, these are the prices. Are you still interested? And here's my audience. And then usually it goes on. Yes, yes, let's do it. That's great because your show is one of the few shows where I actually hear through word of mouth, this show's awesome. You need to listen to it. And so it's like, I don't know, there's such a disparity between, you know, what these ad podcast ad agencies or advertisers are going to see when they look at the podcast charts and what people are actually listening to, which is which is the th- the thrust of of your episode. Yeah, and if I could say something about that, to me, that is the number one marketing strategy that I shoot for is that word of mouth. And to do it, I try to make something remarkable, something people are going to talk about. They're going to go in the office and say, hey, did you do you know about this thing? you got to try this thing. And that's what I want. That's exactly what I want. And to track that, every now and then I'll, I'll do a survey to get the net promoter score. And this is the one question on a scale from zero to 10. How likely are you to tell someone that you would listen to, you know, suggest to, to listen to this podcast? And, you know, I'm hoping the number is is high. You can research what, you know, how to do net promoter scores, but this gives me an indicator on how well the show is spreading on its own because the higher the score, the more likely it is to spread on its own and the less marketing I really need to do or, you know, matches I need to light to try to get things, you know, on fire. So I really focus on that. And if it's not as high, then I'll do something maybe more extraordinary or, or you know, a lot of things I really like to do on this, on, on my podcast is to, is to get into a big niche and, and just get really nerdy. Don't be afraid to exclude people who just don't get it or don't understand it, but instead just get, find like other people who really share that passion with you about a specific subject or get really uh, interested in that specific thing. And here's a perfect example. I got crazy about black hat marketing on podcasts and here you and I are, you're bringing me onto your show, which is going to, you know, you know, help me, help me market even more because now more people are, are, are hearing about that show for the first time. So this is, this is what happens when you get crazy nerdy on a specific subject as other people start saying, well, that speaks to me at my core. I, I, I love that. And now they feel like they're connected with you on, on more ways because you kind of opened up to them and said, this is what's really fascinating to me right now. And other people have already been fascinated with that. And now you're connecting with them. And that's a roundabout way of saying, you know, word of mouth, I think, is, is, is how, how everything is going to, is my favorite way of marketing. Yeah. And I think over time, the internet will become more resilient to some of these spammy techniques, or at least I, I, I hope. One area of this that we haven't talked about is the analytics providers. So when you press play on a podcast episode, that episode is being played from a hosting provider. It's not being played from iTunes. It's being played from Libsyn or from some WordPress server somewhere, like or some other in way of serving an MP3. And you talked with Rob Walsh from Libsyn. Libsyn is is a major podcast analytics provider, probably the, the second biggest. It's a hosting company as well. So they could theoretically filter some listens that they could detect as spammy or you know bot related. Did he tell you about any of the techniques that the hosting providers can use to to uh, to detect like data center listens or other kinds of of gamesmanship? Yeah, this is actually a big topic of that I've gone down a lot as well. I won't get too nerdy into it, but there's a whole kind of standards on how to measure podcast downloads, and it's the IAB podcast download standard. 
And this is Libsyn is actually on the board to develop this standard as well, as well as a bunch of other big podcast hosting providers to to all agree on this is how we should measure things. And one of the tenets of that is to get rid of any bots or spamming or automatic downloads of some kind and filter that out. And that should not count as a download. And so that's already in the, the standards for for analytics on how to count that. And you can, you can, I mean, that, that standard is open for anyone to read, and it's fascinating to see what, what should be filtered out. And it's really hard to measure downloads of podcasts because as the MP3 is streaming across, it might hit your server like 15 times during that stream and say, oh, yeah, we're, we've downloaded this first part. Let's download the next part, and let's download the next part. And if you're not savvy to this, you might count that as 15 downloads because you, you just... I mean, there's another, but they're but they're downloading in sections, and so now you've got to really dig into the logs. What section is it, are you requesting? And it just gets really hard. So that's what the standard aims to do, and it's not perfect, but it gives you a good, you know, basic good idea of how many downloads you're getting. Kind of. I mean, there was one time where I put a redirect on one of my Libsyn links so that it would hit Blueberry as well as Libsyn, and the numbers were completely different. Interesting, yeah. The, the redirect isn't going to be as robust as the actual downloads because the actual downloads we're seeing servers, but the redirect, you're only seeing a, a portion of what what you can actually see. Fair so enough. it's not as accurate Fair to re- redirects. Fair enough, yes. But by the way, I mean, the IAB standard, if you're a savvy botnet operator, you know what the standard is. So you can just game the standard, right? (laughs) Yeah, I suppose that's true. I haven't seen a situation where there's botnets out there downloading podcasts. I mean, some people have reported to me that they've seen a strange spike all from a certain country, a certain location that they just don't have any listeners in. And that is odd what happened there. But usually they're not that big, maybe 50 or 20. Um, yeah, actually, but, now now that I'm remembering your show, this was one thing that surprised me was that there was no mention of botnets. And I was like, well, I mean, if you've got these people in Bangladesh clicking on stuff, why wouldn't you just have a script clicking on stuff? Yeah, I think that will probably be the next version of this, unless Apple has figured out a way to catch this and you know made everyone start back from square one. I think the next thing will be automation here. And it's it's surprising to me to see that you only need about 60 new subscribers a day to actually get on the charts. And um, that's not that many. So, you know, automating something just to be 60 times a day and, you know, you could automate it so that it pops around on different VPNs and reconnects to a VPN every time. And, you know, all the different stuff that potentially could, you know, outsmart Apple on, on detecting this stuff as well. All right. And now we get to go down the rabbit hole. Have you covered advertising fraud at all? On your show? Not yet. Are you are you planning to? Are you curious about it at all? I am curious about it, and I f- so my show is mostly about hacking and and you know cyber crimes and that kind of thing. And when something comes onto my radar that's hacking related to advertising fraud, then that's where I think I'll be most interested. Okay, because I've this is something I've covered a lot and talk about like the charts, you know, investigating the charts, making you uh, want to put on a tinfoil hat. Man, if you look down the rabbit hole of advertising fraud and what you can do with botnets, the conclusion you eventually come to, if you're anything like me, is that in order to solve advertising fraud, you need to solve the Turing test. And we can't solve the Turing test. We do not have a programmatic way of detecting, is a human behind the keyboard or is it a script? And, you know, this is what where we're getting with, with the podcast discussion here is, 
you know, I know that all of the people that you talked to were, you know, supposedly in Bangladesh, or they were telling you that, yeah, we're, we're, I'm working with this guy, my brother in Bangladesh, and we've got all these other users. But you wouldn't know if at the end of the pipeline, maybe there's somebody who's just clicking a script and automating everything. I believe after talking to a dozen of them, I mean, I had them sending me screenshots and taking me step by step through their entire process that I believe it's all manually done over there, just from my research. Okay, fair enough. Well, I I am looking forward to your uh, your advertising fraud coverage. How else has this analysis of the fakeness of the charts changed your view of the internet? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that because I was going to point out another another uh, story that I read that's you know to me really fascinating. This is one where a journalist from Vice was able to create a restaurant that does not exist and put it on TripAdvisor and then went on to TripAdvisor and gave a bunch of fake reviews of the restaurant and kept doing it and doing it and doing it until it became the number one rated restaurant on TripAdvisor for, I think, all of all of London or something. Just that alone, like the restaurant didn't exist, just that alone had his phone ringing off the hook for people wanting to make reservations. And so it became such a phenomenon people everyone wanted to try eating there because it was like well this is the best restaurant rated let's go there tonight you know and they couldn't get in because there there wasn't it just wasn't listed as like a location and you had to like reserve only and it, it was so funny to see all the different calls he was getting so it was i mean that's just another example of like how even places that you would think like TripAdvisor are going to be you know a safe things and maybe look at the ratings there uh no it's it's gameable and that's the kind of the bigger picture here is that other things are gameable as well. Like I was giving you a bunch of those other lists. I did find that the New York Times bestseller list is, is gameable in the way that the New York Times bestseller list will look at certain bookstores to see what they're selling the most of. And then that's what they use uh, as criteria to go on the list. They'll compile, you know, maybe 1,000 or 2,000 bookstores to see which ones are selling the most. And what they'll do, what what some of these, uh, to game the New York Times bestseller list is you can call a ton of bookstores. And this is, um, there's actually published stories that this is how this has happened. You can call a bunch of bookstores, ask, hey, do you report to to the New York Times bestseller list your sales? And then if so, okay, I want to order a bunch of these specific books. And then you order like 29 of them. Because if you order 30, now that's considered bulk sales, and that gets reported differently to the New York Times. So you got to be very specific about exactly how many you order as well. And so now when you order, you know, 29 books from 500 different stores, yeah, you might have spent $200,000 to get your book onto the New York Times bestseller list, buying your own book. But now that it's there, if it stays there for a while, you could make a million dollars off this. And the, the thing that fascinates me is that this isn't illegal. This is just unethical, scammy, if you will, cheating, but it's not illegal. And so you've got a lot of people trying to find loopholes in the system or get rich quick schemes. And this is, I think, one of those systems where it's like, you know what? There's very little to lose here except for my reputation, but there's a lot to possibly gain from this. And that's why people are going after some of these things because they know they just get a little slap on the wrist and then, you know, life goes on. And it's not that big of a deal. So, you know, this kind of opens up your head even more of like, well, what other things can be gained? And and that's why I think it's hard to trust what, what to do out there, what to believe in when it comes to top lists. Tell me more about the thesis of Darknet Diaries. What kinds of stories do you cover and 
what's your modus operandi for the podcast? The podcast was kind of inspired by This American Life or Radiolab, which I thought were beautifully made podcasts that have like a lot of great storytelling and, and, and music involved and the characters they would bring on. You just don't believe it. Like, wow, that's such a crazy story. How is that even real? And I thought, okay, that's great. But I love hacker stories. I've been in, in computer security for the last decade. And so I'm just constantly glued to the, hack, the hacking news. And so I'm like, hey, this is, this is high drama, high stakes, crazy action, like too, too crazy to even believe it's true. Let's make that into a show where it's, it's like this American life, but just that. And so I will find hackers who have actually done criminal activity and interview them to tell me their story about why did you hit that enter button and what was it like after you saw the news and all these things, because I think those are such exciting stories. And then I also like hearing from the other side about the people who have been hacked and lost 100,000 credit cards right under their nose because there were hackers stealing it. And, you know, other big news stories that are, you know, nobody's able to talk to me about it, but they're still exciting news stories as well, like like Stuxnet or, or some, you know, government hacking stories. I just think these stories are so fascinating. And that's what I've been diving into and trying to cover those stories on my show. And, and people really love it. They, they, they're getting, a, they're, they're just, they're eating it up like crazy. And there is a, a massive hunger for this kind of content. And, and part of it is because the Venn diagram of people with an engineering background and people who can create media is so limited relative to the number of stories that are this unbelievable. Yeah, I think you've got something there. One of the things that kind of gave me a leg up here is that for about eight years before making the podcast, I was a blogger and I was trying to blog not just about my thoughts and stuff, but like some of the technical problems I would hit at work. You know, this is the hack we're, we're experiencing. Here's how we defended against it, this kind of stuff. And so I was putting really complex, uh, you know, thoughts into as simple of terms as possible, because that's what I like. I like simplicity. I don't want you to give me a really complicated scenario and then tell me, here's the here's the one little part of this that we need to look at to explore. Just give me the one little part to begin with instead of the complicated scenario. So I was spending years and years, you know, writing really complex stuff simply. And I think there's money there. I think there's a lot of money in being able to describe really complex stuff in simple terms. Because this opens up a whole new audience to be able to enjoy your content. There's no shortage of security podcasts. There, there's probably 50 of them. But they're all covering subject. You've got to be in the space to really understand it. You know, they're, they're, they're using terminology and they're, they're, they're telling you about things. They're, they're commenting on things that you, they assume you already know about. And I'm like, and, and also they're covering the latest news. So unless you like meet or like want to stay up on the latest news or just want to hear about people talking about security, it's just not that exciting for the average person. And so I kind of took that and kind of translated it and so that even non-technical people can understand it. And that opened it up to a whole new audience, right? So now you've got, you know, a bunch of people who who didn't who didn't don't really understand tech to be able to hear these stories, relate to them, understand them, and and still enjoy it just as much, and even learn something on the way. A lot of people say it's kind of like edutainment as well because it's a true story, but at the same time, I, I have to break down what is an ISP or what is a, a certificate authority or, or you know some of these more complex things, and people really get a a lot out of that part too. You know, they know a little bit more at the end. I want to capture your sentiment here because I'm I'm not I'm still not exactly sure where you're coming from because I 
I've put out the bait a couple times in this podcast for you to put on the tinfoil hat, like I do sometimes. And you seem more grounded, at least than I am, because I look at something like Fiverr and I see how Fiverr has been abused here for, you know, for, for just, you know, podcast goosing. And I know about scripting and I know about Amazon Mechanical Turk. And my imagination just runs wild and sort of assumes the worst. And it seems like you might have a, a, a different perspective. Maybe you're, you're assuming, uh, innocent until until proven guilty how do you how do you calibrate your level of paranoia <laughs> yeah for so for one i think that his news is the first draft of history and whenever i see like something is is hitting the news today i say you know what i'm going to reserve my decision on whether i think this is good or bad until i have more information and i sometimes have to wait years before i can you know look back and see you know what that was a good idea or that was a bad idea or that was terrible or whatever. And so that's that's kind of another thing I like to dig in on this show is to really do a lot of research and get as much of this side of the story as I do that side of the story and, and then try to look at it after we have all of the facts on the table, you know, because now it's over. It's been years. We can actually look at all the pieces here. Maybe the hacker was caught and did prison time or whatever. And, you know, we know who did it and how they did it and all these things. And now we can look and, and we know what their what their motivation was to do it or something. So I do. I mean, the first thing is I reserve my my decision until I have all the information. But at some point, I, I just feel like the world is moving and it's out of my out of my control as well. You know, like things are becoming more and more invulnerable. And I can't really get so worked up or worried about it. And maybe it's just one of those, like, I've seen it so many, like, you know, I'm just jaded by it, too, because I've been, been seeing so many breaches and so many, it's just fatigued by all the security problems that I just don't get too excited about it anymore when I see it. It's hard to not get crazy as well and just be like, here's another thing is I think I had a boss once that I said, hey, we need to secure our network because I think, you know, if we get hacked, it would be a big deal. And he said to me, no, it wouldn't be a big deal. I don't think we would have that big of a problem if we were hacked. And I thought to myself, I need to explain myself better. I need to somehow explain it better. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to make this show is to be able to explain the problems of being hacked in such a way that even our bosses could understand if they're if they're that thick to be able to say oh my gosh we would be in that same situation if we got hacked and this is all the problems that happened to them we need we definitely need to take this seriously as well i think just my 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 one of my goals is to really try to educate people on the dangers of of security out there and what could happen if you know something happened to you and yeah, I mean, like the I think the perfect example of this in your your history, the first draft of history thing. I'm looking at this Huawei stuff, and like I, it's it's just like a perfect example of something I have no idea how to perceive. You know, it's like am I being fed you know nationalistic perspectives on a, on a technology company based out of China, or is Huawei you know the nefarious all-seeing eye that is trying to it's hard to know because we, we here in the U.S. at least don't see Huawei at all. Like we just don't, we can't even buy their phones. We can't buy their technology. So it is basically, uh, you know, really big in Asia. We don't really have a connection to it. So when we see something like this in the news, we don't really have that perspective on any history of dealing with the company or anything like that. And so we're just fed this. And yeah, do we believe it? Or like, how, where does this fit into our perspective of the world? It's hard to know. Because this is probably the first time we even heard about this company, you know. So it's hard to, 
it's, it's hard to put it into perspective. I agree. But I will say about that company is me kind of keeping my nose on the, on the news for the last 10 years about security. They've been notoriously copying and stealing software from other companies such as Cisco and putting it in their routers and just calling it their own. I mean, including the bugs and everything. So, you know, it's like a, a one for one copy of the whole operating system. And calling it their own and renaming it and rebranding it and everything to their own operating system. And it's just been shady all around. To me, it's like, yeah, these people, I have saw this coming. Like, this is, why didn't this happen years ago? Yeah, it's like you, you got to, I mean, you can either laugh or you can cry. It's basically, those are your two options and generally better to laugh. Uh, just to close off, what, I mean, your podcast is so good. It's so well produced. And, you know, it's in a time of many different kinds of technology media. And, you know, like I personally, I had to stop watching Black Mirror because it was too dystopian for me. And it was just like, I've, I'm, I have entered this state of mind where your imagination really can run wild and how negative you can perceive the world in regard to tech. And, you know, I feel like people like you and I, you know, our responsibility partly is to craft the narrative because, you know, the the narrative is going to guide what people will believe. And to some degree, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And therefore, we should kind of be utopian rather than dystopian. What do you think of that perspective, that we should err on the side of, of, of utopianism because, you know, people are going to, to become what they are consuming? Yeah, it's really fascinating. And to me, it's kind of like the first generation, we're still kind of in the first generation of consuming this new online world of internet. And I feel like the first generation of some things abuse it. Like you think about alcohol being introduced in the US, well, it got abused so badly that there turned out to be prohibition. And that lasted for a while. And then it came back to, uh, you know, be reintroduced. So now we have, you know, multiple generations later, we know how to handle our alcohol a lot better than what we did when we first got it. It was just crazy. Let's just do this. We don't know all the dangers and this kind of thing. So it took a while to kind of get to a place where we can be responsible with it. And I think that might be the case with the internet here. It's just, it's exploding in such a way that it's, you know, more and more irresponsible, more and more crazy. It's something that's going to, in my opinion, this conspiracy theory here, something big is going to happen where I think some of the big things that politicians like to get behind is like, pornography, child abuse, drugs, and these kind of things should be banned off our internet, and we need to protect our children from this kind of stuff. And so something might rally behind there to the point where now all of a sudden the politicians are blocking the country from being able to get outside the country because we don't want to get to Russian porn sites or something like that. So there might be, oh, of course, and there's gambling too and, and buying illegal weapons or whatever. And so, you know, they're going to use those flags to, to really pull it back the internet back and, and we'll lose like a lot of uh, features and, and possibilities that we currently have and kind of take for granted. And then we'll learn how to properly have those on our internet. And we'll, we'll probably come back to opening it up again and being more free and knowing what's like inappropriate or appropriate. I think it's going to take a few generations for us to get to a, a more settled place on the internet but it's so fascinating to me that it's happening right in front of our eyes jack thanks for coming on the show it's been really fun talking to you yeah this was a lot of fun thanks for having me wow